The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in November 2007. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we welcome Judy Kuhn. Hi, Judy. Hi. Thanks for having me. Let me just go through a few credits. Um, currently back on Broadway in Les Miserables, and having been on Broadway 20 years earlier in Les Mis, that's very interesting. <laughs> We're going to certainly talk about that. Okay. Other Broadway <laughs> credits include The Mystery of Edwin Drood, uh, Chess, uh, a revival of She Loves Me, a number of other Broadway credits as well, and a number of regional and uh, other credits around the country, including an adaptation of Chekhov's Three Sisters by Craig Lucas at the Intamon, uh, directed by Bart Shear, uh, the premiere of Michael John Lacuse's The Highest Yellow at Signature Theater, and creating the role of Betty Schaefer in the U.S. premiere of Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles. So interesting background. And as I said, back on Broadway now in La Mis, 20 years ago, you created the role of Cosette. Now you're the mother. You're Fantine. That must be weird, kind of. Well, (laughs) it is. I feel a little bit like I'm in a time warp (laughs) because I have so many memories associated with that production, the original production. It was a very exciting thing to be a part of, and it was a very exciting time in my life. It was sort of, you know, the beginning, really, of my career, and... So it's I, I'm to be. It's like visiting a you know your childhood home, <laughs> except I'm living in it again. But the perspective is totally different, of course, because it's not like you're going back to play the same role. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, I'm a mother now, so it's interesting to play the mother of this character who I knew so well <laughs> once upon a time. So it's it's really been fun. It's and it's been a it's a great company. They've been very welcoming. Well, to being me. a mother, how does that inform you now to play a mother in? Well, obviously, you don't have to be a mother to play a mother, but I mean, you know, it's uh, this is a character who essentially dies for her child. And I I think any parent knows what that is. I think any parent would do that. And it's a very to 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 have to cope with the idea that your child is in danger uh, to cope with the separation from your child is something that as a mother i can imagine how painful and traumatic that is and what she goes through uh to to help her child and ultimately she gives up her life for her child i read somewhere that you were on vacation back in august when suddenly you got an email <laughs> saying would you like to be in the maze again <laughs> i did i did well i i actually i guess cameron had asked me to be involved in the um 10th anniversary production cameron mcintosh the producer the producer yeah. yes yeah. and um i my daughter was very young then and i wasn't really quite ready for that schedule again and um, so it wasn't the right time for me, and so they sort of floated <laughs> the idea in front of me again, and I thought, okay, maybe this is the right time to play that part. So so here you are. Here I am. <laughs> in the original production, having looked it up, you played Cosette, but also the lovely IBDB refers to you as both Cosette and whore. <laughs> and <laughs> does that, it now? <laughs> it does. So presumably you were in that gaggle of women who yes. are taunting Fontaine. So truly you're looking at this from a different perspective. You had all of those nights to watch another actress play that role. Yes. How much of what you saw then informs you now? Well, it's hard to say because it was so long ago. However, Randy Graff, who played Fantine originally and was so wonderful, her, her performance definitely lives somewhere in my head. So I, I 
we're very different, so I don't know that anyone would see her in my performance. However, I'm sure unconsciously there are maybe inflections or things that I picked up. I didn't really get to watch a whole lot of her performance because I was busy running around doing other things. Um, but, uh, you know, who knows? I, I'm sure there there might be people who were there, you know, part of that company or saw it who might recognize something. I don't know. And there's <laughs> always the fascinating thing for me when I speak to someone who created a role and when the show goes on and on and has a life like Les Mis, from the time you left the show originally, had you had a chance to go back? Did you even want to go back and see other performers and other productions of the show? Well, I actually did see the show a couple times. I think I went to the first anniversary um, when I had just left the show. Um, and I guess I must have been in rehearsals for chess at that time. Um uh, and I did see the 10th anniversary. I went on the 10th anniversary. So I did see the show a couple of times. And it's it's wonderful to see a show go on and have new people breathe new life into it. So, um, you know, it's always funny, funny to see it sort of reincarnated in different, uh, you know, through different performers. And coming into it now, I mean, obviously, we're sitting here asking you questions because this is an interview program. But there must be something. There have got to be people in your cast who didn't see the original production, maybe even one or two who weren't around <laughs> when the original production. Have you had the experience of, like, coming in as the eminence who remembers how it all began? Did they quiz you about it? Uh, not really. I don't feel like anyone's treating me like the eminence. <laughs> Work on um, that. They seem very happy to have me there. Uh and, you know, everyone's so busy there. <laughs> you don't really have a lot of time to chat. And I barely rehearsed with anybody. So, you know, the usual times that you would sit around and chat and tell tales hasn't really happened yet. <laughs> so. Well, did you have to do anything special to prepare for this? Obviously, it's a different role, but it's also 20 years since you were in it. Right. Did you have to, like, study up on, on the show? Well, yeah, I reread the uh, the first section, the Fontaine section of the novel, mm-hmm. um, because so much of her story in the show is offstage, and you really have to fill in a lot of blanks. And so remembering what her backstory is and a lot of the things that happened to her in between all the scenes that we see in the show were very useful to me. And I did, you know, my I'm, I'm big on research, so I did a lot of research. Um, so did, did you go in to see the show, this, this current edition, before going on stage? I did not. I didn't. Because you didn't want to see the other person. I don't in the role. like to watch somebody else's performance mm-hmm. when I have to create my own. I just don't like to do that. I just rather start from scratch. Well, you commented that you were really rehearsing by yourself. So, just what was the experience of being put into the show for you? Well, it's difficult. I, you know, I've never been put into a show before, and I'm big on process. I love the rehearsal process. And this process is sort of backwards. You know, usually you start with that research and you start with whatever kinds of exploration and then you move your way into blocking and then into costumes and all of that uh, into the theater. 
this was being on stage from the get-go and being told stand there and do that and there's those are your words those are your notes and this person's going to be standing here they were wonderful with me in that they were very very flexible and when I had an idea that of something I wanted to do that was a little different they were more than happy to adjust the blocking a little bit and you know I didn't want to mess anybody up but um, they were great in that way um, uh, but it's hard because you really do have to sort of put yourself into an already living organism. You don't have the luxury of that long rehearsal process. So I'm sort of still working on stage in front of an audience and trying for myself to fill in all those blanks that I didn't get to work on in rehearsal. How similar or perhaps dissimilar is the current production from the original, as, as you recall the original? Um, it's not that different. They've made some cuts, uh, just little nips and tucks here and there to make it a little shorter. Um, the orchestrations are quite different because um, it's a smaller band, so they they reorchestrated it. Um, but it's essentially the same of production, course. and it's you know it's a different theater, so some of the set had to be adjusted. Still has the turntable, still has the barricades. Still has the turntable, <laughs> still has the barricades. Still has know. the score and all that. It obviously, still has the score. Anyone who saw the original would definitely recognize this show. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back and talk about um, how you got into the business to start with. You had not originally been thinking seriously of being an actor up on stage, then you came to New York. You grew up in Washington, was it? I grew up in in a suburb of Washington. Uh-huh. Um, I, I think in my heart of hearts, I always wanted to be in the theater, but I think I was, wasn't sure if it was a life that I could <laughs> cope with, knowing mm-hmm. how uncertain it is. And I didn't know if I had the personality for it. Well, when um, did, I still wonder if I do. <laughs> but, uh, and I grew up with an activist father who's a civil rights lawyer, and I sort of felt like I had to be a do-gooder in the world. And uh-huh. um, I, I, I just think I wasn't sure if it, if it was for me, but I think I got to a point where I had done enough theater and I felt like I had to give it a try. So I moved to New York and well, gave you, it a try. You went to college at Oberlin. Did you study theater there? I did some theater there, and I studied music. I was a mm-hmm. voice student there. Then you moved to New York, and what got you on a stage in New York? Um, well, I came to New York to get get on the stage. Yeah, yeah. I, I lived in Boston for a year after I graduated from school, and then I did some summer stock, and there were people there who were very encouraging and said, well, if you want to do this, you got to come to New York, and here's my card when you get here. <laughs> so I sort of, you know, decided, all right, this is my chance just to give it a try. If it doesn't work out, I can find something else to do. So you moved to New York. You knocked on doors, called people. I knocked on the- doors. I went, I, you know, I did what any young actor does. I, you know, went to open calls and uh-huh. signed up for auditions and, you know, eventually found my way. And what was your first appearance then in New York? My first appearance in New York. On a stage, my, on a professional stage in New York. On a professional stage. Well, I guess my first equity job uh-huh. would have been with, um, well, it was it's now called Theater Works USA, and it was then called PART, which was for Performing Artist Repertory Theater. <laughs> <laughs> and I did a workshop of a show they were developing with some wonderful writers who then went on to great fame and fortune. (laughs) Um, uh, Marta Kaufman and uh, Michael Skloff and David Crane, who then went on and created Friends. And, Mm -hmm. uh, well, Michael Skloff, who's a composer who wrote the music, wrote the theme song for Friends and writes a lot for television. And 
now they're doing quite well in Los Angeles. <laughs> they're great people. Um, but it was a really fun show working on that. They did a kind of wacky version of Rapunzel. And I had more yarn on my head. (laughs) (laughs) And then right, I mean, actually, at the same time that that happened, I was cast in the national tour, the last national tour of The King and I with Yul Brynner. So those two things happened at once. That was the first time I had a real paycheck. I thought, wow, someone's really paying me to do this. (laughs) So do you have any good Yul Brynner stories? Yeah, but I don't know if I want to share. (laughs) (laughs) But that that must have been something, though, to be out on the road with someone who truly was a legend in in a given role. It was an experience. Let's put it that way. And that's all we're getting. (laughs) Just leave it at that. (laughs) Yes, and I I also made a very good friend in um, Mary Beth Peel, who played Mrs. Anna, who. Uh, who I've had the opportunity to work with several times since then is a very good friend, and so. Well, so, your, your first um, Broadway credit shows up in a non-performing role as an assistant or an advisor, rather, to the director of a show that only ran about two weeks called "Don't Step on My Olive yeah, Branch." Yeah, you know that somehow wound up on the internet, uh-huh. and it's not, true. it's not true. And I'm going to correct the record oh, okay. now. I have no idea what that is. Hmm. Is there another Judy Kuhn lurking somewhere? There must be, I or somebody got it wrong. I, I don't know, and I saw, that appeared in a bio that somebody else published on my behalf once and I looked at it and said, where did that come from? And they said, oh, it's on whatever, online we got it. And I'm like, well... <laughs> so, so we're setting the record straight Set, officially. Setting the record okay. straight. So it had nothing to do with Don't Step on My Olive Branch. I would love to know what Don't Step on My Olive Branch is because I, I find the title very intriguing. <laughs> so let's go to the real first Broadway <laughs> credit and, and Drood, which started initially in the park at the Delacorte. Yes. Tell us about that show and how it came together. That was an, an incredible experience for me. It, um, it was it was the first time I sort of went into an audition that felt like something really big to me, and I got the job. You know, I will never forget when I got the phone call. Um, and uh, it was an extraordinary cast. I Why mean, did it feel big in the audition? Just what what was it about that? Oh, it's the public theater. All these people were involved who I'd heard of, you know. Um, it, it was a new show. It was a new musical. It just was on a level that, to me, was, it, you know, what is it would have been... I, going in, I thought, wow, this would be a really incredible job to get. And at that point, I thought, I, you know, how am I ever going to get a job like this? And so it was a big deal to me when they made that offer to me and also an opportunity i understudied two of the leading ladies so it was that was a great opportunity for me too so and at that point of course it was a four week or maybe a six week run in central park right you, you didn't even know i didn't that even it know that it would to... turn into a broadway debut how did that show change did it change much from the park when it went till it went into a broadway house um it did uh, i mean i th- I think Rupert may have done some rewriting. I can't remember specifically, but um, it pretty much stayed the same. Obviously, we we had it was a different um, physical space we were dealing with because there was a lot of audience participation. For those who don't know the show, the audience voted on the ending, and we would go out and in the audience and collect votes and talk to people. And obviously, in the park, it had a you know, sort of a circus kind of picnic atmosphere. So in a, you know, proscenium Broadway 
uh, setting, it was a little different. Um, I think the audience was maybe a little bit more surprised to find the actors <laughs> going mm-hmm. up and speaking to them. <laughs> but uh, it was it was great, great fun. Well, a little bit of the backstory: the mystery of Edwin Drood was based on a Dickens, Charles Dickens, yes. uh, series of of um, uh, installments, chapters. Basically, it was a serial that he was writing, right. and he died before he finished it. Right. Nobody really knew what the ending was going to be because exactly. he didn't he didn't leave any notes. So Rupert Holmes mm-hmm. wrote a stage play based on that. It was kind of a a play within a play, as I recall. Yes, and um, he wrote the score for it as well. So as an actor. Not knowing how the show is going to end from one day to the next because the audience voted on the right. ending, how did that affect the performance? How how did you as actors deal with that? Well, <laughs> um, I mean, it, it sounds slightly more perhaps improvised than it uh-huh. was. I mean, it basically. Well, he he, he had planned different yes, endings. There were there were there were um, different endings, and and depending on who was voted. Both the um, perpetrator of the crime and um, the there was an identity of of there was a mysterious figure and that you had to figure out the identity of that. And was there also a question of did Drew die or not? You know. Well, I think in this it was a given that he had been murdered uh-huh. and we had to find out who murdered him. So okay. every character had their sort of confession of why they murdered um, Edwin Drood. So depending on how. Um, the the who who was chosen as the murderer that person basically got their start okay but tell the us end. the truth was it really the audience voting or was there a rotation absolutely, between so everybody it, got their it was confession? absolutely the audience voting huh. absolutely they it was built into the show that after the vote was collected there was a little bit more story to be told so they could count and there were accountants in there the were, wings I, I can't remember exactly who it was probably stage management somebody I guess all the I can't remember but actually how he it did it it wasn't that, that they, everybody would sort of say okay well tonight no. it's going to be Judy's and confession. in fact I'll tell you a little story because I was as I said I understood well I understudied Betty Buckley who played Edwin Drood and I understudied um, Patty Cohenauer who played a character named Rosa Budd and the I think it was the third preview on Broadway. I went on for Patty, mm. having um, rehearsed it in the park, but not having had any rehearsals in the new theater. So where there, I mean, that was probably the biggest change was that blocking had to be uh, adjusted. But um, the way it worked was at the end of the story that up to the vote, um, they all the characters stood in a line with a number, and the the uh, the ensemble would go out in the house and t- tally people's votes. And you you would write. I can't. I actually don't remember how we did it, but somehow you'd vote by the number. And while that was all going on, um, at the after that was all going on, we'd walk off stage. That the principals would walk off stage to get ready for whatever the next thing they had to do in the show, and they'd drop their number and. Um, the stage managers would say who who was on as the murderer as you walked off stage. <laughs> and the night I went on as Rosa Bud, I basically thought, I'm not going to worry about the murderer part. There, no one's going to vote for me. I'm the understudy. <laughs> and um, I just was so – I had so much to think about. And I'd never performed in a principal role on a Broadway stage. So it was a big night for me. Sure. <laughs> so – but Rosa came comes off stage – 
take has a quick change and has to go right back on stage. And I came off stage and the stage manager said, it's you. I said, what? It's you. You're the murderer. And I looked at them. I thought they were playing some kind of terrible joke on me. And they said, no, it really is you. And before I knew it, they were changing my hat and shoving me back on stage for the next scene. And so I spent the whole next scene thinking, what are what do I do now that I'm the murderer? I can't <laughs> to kind of put it all together in my head. It was pretty funny. Wow, <laughs> kind of like being thrown off the back of a boat. Swim. Yes, it was, and it was just about living the actor's nightmare. But somehow I made it through. When people talk about streaks for athletes, right? You had a streak that we should say that Drood started. <laughs> Eighty-five Edwin Drood, eighty-six Rags, eighty-seven Les Mis, eighty-eight Chess extraordinary yeah let's talk about we've already talked about two of the shows in the street right so let's keep going rags which you seem to have gone into fairly quickly after drood uh yeah no i left drood to do rags actually mm-hmm. um and uh you know again that was that my first the first time i was cast in a principal role in a broadway show so that again was very exciting um with writers that uh, again i had heard of <laughs> and had always admired and um it was a wonderful part you know it it, it had its difficulties um uh, but uh you know well, rags is a show more spoken of than seen for many yeah, can, well, you, it didn't can you last just very explain long. a little about the show for the audience and also about your character bella cohen yes um well the show took place um well, in some ways, there are some because Joe Stein wrote, who wrote the book, also wrote the book for Fiddler on the Roof. So there was those who sort of call, called it a sequel in a way to Fiddler on the Roof because it was about what happened to those immigrants when they arrived in this country. Um, and I played a character named Bella, who was a young woman coming with her father, um, no mother, and coming to live with her aunt and uncle who befriends on the boat a woman who's come coming with her young son to to meet her husband um when she arrives her husband is nowhere to be seen so they take her in and it's um you know it's that character named rebecca who is played by teresa stratus is sort of the was the central character and bella is her friend and has a very sad tale of you know, trying to find her way in this new country and feeling very much um, out of place and not able to find her way in this new country and uh, ultimately is killed in the um, Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. And it's, it's very sad. And I mean, there, the thing that I loved about that show is all the stories of all those characters, and there were many wonderful characters in that piece, are all real stories of... That we know those real experiences at that time. You spoke a moment ago about a show that had its problems. Was it production problems? Was it book problems? What <laughs> you know, we, we hear about these things. Well, <clears throat> let me just say that it, I mean it's a wonderful piece. Um, Charles Strauss, who wrote the score, I think it's his uh, one of his, if not his best score, absolutely beautiful music. Stephen Schwartz wrote the lyrics, fantastic lyrics. Um, they fired the director two weeks into the show. Um, I, you know, I'm not even going to begin to speculate all the things that went on behind the scenes, but basically Stephen and Charles sort of took over as directors when we were 
uh, rehearsing for our out-of-town run, which was in Boston. Um, so it was a little bit of ship without a captain. And, you know, I don't know what they would say about it now. <clears throat> but um, it was, I, I think it needed to have a firm hand as director because, you know, it was, we were, it was a show in development. And, you know, they wanted to, I'm sure, work on the writing. And yet they were distracted by telling people where to enter and what, you know, what to do. And so it was, it was, it never had the proper leadership, I think, is kind of what happened. That's my take on it. You know, I'm sure everybody has their opinions about it. Kind of, kind of a sad tale. <laughs> it is. It is. And it's a wonderful, wonderful show. And I, I do hope that someday it has another life. I know people do. There are have been other productions of it. I've never seen any of them. But I think it's a, it's a great story and it's a wonderful, wonderfully written piece. So as the streak continues, <laughs> chess. <laughs> now, chess, again, like Les Mis, had been done in England mm-hmm. initially and then done over here. I recall that at some point in the in chess's travels, there was a significant book rewrite. Was that for the Broadway production or did that follow when it went out to tour? Yes. Well, unlike Les Miserables, the production of – I mean, that the production of Les Miserables here was the – essentially the same production as uh, was done in London. Um, What happened with Chess is originally Chess in London was supposed to be directed by Michael Bennett. Um, It was and and conceived as a sort of pop dance spectacle. Um, And of course there was a recording beforehand. um, A a concept recording. A concept recording. So it was conceptually very different than the kind of show that a director like Trevor Nunn, who ultimately directed it for in New York, would have taken on. Huh. Um, it was cast by Michael Bennett. It was designed under his supervision. The whole thing and was sort of ready to go. And um, he pulled out, I think, only a couple weeks before rehearsals were supposed to start. I think mm-hmm. it was he at that point was ill and just realized he couldn't do it. And uh, the producers then approached Trevor to direct it, and he said, I think, I mean, I'm extrapolating a little bit, uh, that he uh, um, would take it on. But obviously, you know, he was going to have to sort of deal with something that was conceived by someone else. And he said if it ever had another life, he would want to start from scratch and think about what kind of show he would have wanted to, to work on. Um, which is ultimately what happened. And I think when after Chess opened in London, he said, OK, now it, if we're going to do it in New York, it's going to be my show. And I see it as I would like to tell the story more and not and have it not be so much a spec dance spectacle, because obviously he's not a choreographer either. Um, and so he he sort of reconceived it and wanted it to be really a book musical and make it very naturalistic and really wanted to tell this sort of this story of the lives of these people against a kind of Cold War political drama. Um, And so at the time, uh, the playwright Richard Nelson, who is a very political, writes a lot about geopolitics and how it affects the lives of individuals, um, and whose plays were done quite a bit in London, and um, Trevor was very familiar with his work and admired it, asked him if he would like to come in and write a more of a play 
with music um, and and see what direction that took the piece in. And so that's really what came here. When you got involved, were, did you sign on once the Richard Nelson book existed, or did you sort of know what the English production was and just said, you know, I'll go with this? Oh, I knew nothing about the English production. I'd heard the recording, um, and I, I mean, I knew something of the backstory of the English production, and yes, the book had been developed. I mean, they had already moved on to developing it. I mean, I, I came into it when they were casting it and getting ready to go into rehearsal. So it, it, yes, the book had been written, and I knew it was something different. Um, I was, at that time, I think at that time I was, might have been... No, no, actually, I did had seen a couple of Richard's plays, so I knew who he was and admired his work. Um, listen, it was... Uh, I had never been cast in the starring role in a Broadway right. show, so for <laughs> me, you know, it was to go in, even to be asked to audition for it was very exciting. And you were, in fact, cast as Florence, who is the, the second for the American player, based yes. loosely based on Bobby Fischer, yes. I guess, and who gets romantically involved with the Russian player. Yes, yes. I mean, it it was, as you say, loosely based on the very, f- during that time, very famous chess match between Bobby Fischer and Boris, Boris Spassky. Spassky. Which was from the 70s. Well, yes, and it was the height of the Cold War, and all these, this political thing was playing in the background and it became a kind of you know represented the sort of uh, ideological battle between these two nations and i think that's what I and mean, that's what inspired them to write this show and thought how interesting to that a game of chess can become a political drama mm-hmm. and um so yes it was inspired by that but of course all the the romance and the all the the machinations that happen in it are completely <laughs> invented. Well, tell us a little bit about Florence. Who 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 was Florence? I mean, was she, was she a real person for one um, thing? I don't think she was based on anyone uh, real. Um, although, of course, these all these chess players do have these people in their lives who are called um, seconds, which are like their sparring partners, or mm-hmm. you know, it's the the for t- a tennis star, it's like their hitting partner. It's the people who are superb chess players who play chess with them and present all these challenges. So mm-hmm. we know from that that she's brilliant, and she's probably one of the only people who can kind of keep up with this guy. And one of the things, I guess, that maybe was a little bit more based on the Bobby Fischer idea was the Freddie, who, the character who was the Bobby Fischer character in, in this, is a very um, eccentric difficult uh, uh, somewhat of a prima donna um, character and who she gets she's very intimately involved in it's not spelled out whether they have a romantic relationship but um, they uh, are very entangled with each other Um, and it's a relationship that doesn't particularly make her happy because it's all about him and she is very much um, at his beck and call. And so when she meets suddenly this other man who is also as brilliant as she is, mm-hmm. but is kind, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, it it sort of turns her head a little bit. This is your first starring role in a Broadway show. Yes. What did you do to physically, mentally, emotionally prepare for the role? Oh, my goodness. Um 
I worked very, very hard. Uh, I was thankful to be in the hands of a director who I, at that point, was familiar with, having just worked on Les Miserables with him, and who was always very supportive of me, and I really trusted him. So I, I always felt like I was, you know, being taken care of, and I could trust all the notes and everything, all the the way I was being steered through the part. So that that gave me a lot of confidence. Had you ever, in your own life, played chess? No. Did you, have, did you have to read up on it? Did you have to learn anything about the subject matter? I tried. <laughs> um, actually, we, the three of us, um, were invited. I guess the press people arranged this. Um, Gary Kasparov, who was at that time the world chess champion, came to, to New York to, to play an exhibition match. And in these things, or uh, he, they play 20 people at once. It's quite an extraordinary mm. thing to see. And they invite, you know, all the top chess players and they, they put this table in a square and he stands in the middle and he goes around and plays just move. It's extraordinary to watch. They had us play. <laughs> <laughs> None of us really knowing anything about how to play chess. He got uh, frustrated with us very quickly. <laughs> I would think so. <laughs> well, as we traipse through your career, um, <laughs> have to ask about a show of yours that I know of, but know next to nothing about. You went to London to do Metropolis. Mm-hmm. Just tell us a little about <laughs> Metropolis, which ultimately we did not see over well, here. Well, no. Oh, gosh, you know, I uh, it was another experience. It wasn't always a happy one. Um, uh, oh, gosh. You know, I... I it was not an easy experience. It was a show that was had a lot of difficulties. I, I don't like to tell tales out of school, so that's why I'm being a little cagey about but it. Since but since none of us got to see it, virtually none of us, um, just tell us briefly what it was. It was um, a musical based on the Fritz Lang silent film of the same name that was really in its time. I, I pro- And actually, if you watch it now, it seems almost avant-garde. I mean, it's a real futuristic um, film uh, imagining a kind of urban nightmare <laughs> um, of uh, a world in which, you know, people are sort of enslaved and live underground and kind of run the machinery that fuels this above ground city that all these you know privileged people live in and there's this very we see this very iconic image those of us who who are aware of the movie of this female robot yes that we see you know in the ads in the promotions from that movie when they come back was that the part of the character that you were playing yes well what the character there's a character called maria who is one of these underground people who starts to um I, I can't remember what inspires her but she I guess she must get a glimpse of what happens above but she basically starts to lead a rebellion and the sort of mad scientist who kind of is the one who invented this whole dual world uh creates a robot that looks like her to send her da- to send down to try to sabotage this rebellion, so yes, it becomes this dual role of a kind of Jekyll and Hyde sort of uh, story. Well, we won't push you on it. We'll jump right <laughs> yeah, back <okay>. to humanity. <laughs> <laughs> and she loves me. The roundabout production. Yes. 
that was a very happy, happy experience. <laughs> I'm glad we got back to that quickly for you. But that was a show that people probably hadn't seen for a long time. It was very successful in its yes. in its original production, but when that revival came along, it was it was a bit of a rediscovery. Yeah, for everyone. It, well, it was. I think the first Broadway revival of the piece. I'm, I'm sure it had been done often regionally and in various places, but it was the first Broadway revival, and it was actually the 30th anniversary of the original production. So, um, yeah, I mean, it is a true gem of a show, and I, I mean, it, to me, it's up there with one of the handful of what I would call the perfectly constructed musical. Um, and it is a total crowd pleaser. I mean, people, it was like a love fest in that theater every night. <laughs> and stylistically, rather different from what you'd been doing, which were, let's face it, mega musicals. Yeah. So was that a, a new opportunity for you? Also, it was a comedy. I mean, you know, it had its dark side. It definitely had its pathos, but it was a comedy. It was great to be in a theater where people were laughing and there was romance and I get the guy and all of those things. <laughs> it was very, it was, uh, you know, it was great to go out of the theater every night with a smile. <laughs> My face. Well, you, you you had the role that was originated 30 years earlier, 1963, by Barbara Cook, yes. an iconic car uh, figure herself. Yes. How did you then address making the part your own? Well, of course, I didn't see Barbara's well, performance. Well, you were just a child. So I did not um, – I, I didn't have anything to, uh, you know, Well, kind of – there was the cast recording. Had you heard the cast recording? Um, I actually hadn't heard the cast recording um, and made a point of not listening to the cast recording. Mm -hmm. But, you know, of course, Barbara is an extraordinary artist, and she, as you say, she is an icon, and, you know, I, I admire her so much, and she's also just a, such a wonderful person. I definitely felt the big shoes I was stepping into, and, um, you know, it's it's daunting to take on something like that, but at the same time, you know, it's also it was wonderful to... You know, the thing about the theater is that those performances don't live on forever. Right. And so, you know, the only way a piece lives on is when other people do it. And she was so generous about um, sort of handing the role to me. She was she actually made one of the most elegant gestures that anyone's ever made <laughs> Um in the original production was underwritten by Guerlain, the perfume company, because mm -hmm. it takes place in a perfume shop. And. I guess um, the set was dressed with these antique perfume bottles, one of which she took on their closing night as a souvenir. Oh. And on our opening night, there was a bag on my dressing table with a note from Barbara saying, this is from the original set. I want you to have it. You know, I wish you all the mm. best. Oh, isn't that sweet? And there it is. This That's thing that was her must have been a very prized possession of hers. But to me, it was this gesture of, um, "It's the real part is yours now. I'm giving it to you. Mm. And it was... I mean, I don't know how many people in the theater would do something like yeah, that. And she really is extraordinary in that way. So now I have this wonderful object. <laughs> and I figure maybe in another 20 years or whenever they do another revival, I'll hand it on to whoever the next you'll, you'll, one. You'll start a the next Amalia. Exactly. <laughs> that, that, that's an amazing story. I'm getting kind of goosebumps as yeah, you tell that. No, yeah, she yeah. is really a one of a kind. Had you known her, had you spoken with her prior to opening night? Yes, I have met her um, on several occasions. Uh -huh. We have many mutual friends, and she's always been really encouraging me. In fact, you know, in the 
last 10 years or so, I've started to do concert work and stuff, which was one of the things she always encouraged me to do. So I always sort of feel like I pay tribute to her every time I go on stage. So in your preparation to be in the show, did you then ask her for any information prior to, to the show? No, because it's a new of, production. You know, kind of I, you have to go with your director and choreographer and, you know, all the other actors who... And just discover it for yourself. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Uh-huh. You went from She Loves Me... Right out to the West Coast yes. for a musical. Not, not. In those days, we we didn't think so much of musicals coming from the West Coast. Right. But uh, <laughs> not a small show, Sunset Boulevard. Yes. So, you were already committed to that before she loves me. Is that how it worked? I out? had yes. I had been offered that and said I would do it before she loves me came along. So I did have this kind of crazy situation when She Loves Me was going to move from the roundabout to a commercial house, but I'd already made this other commitment. And there was a moment of uncertainty, And but I felt like I had already made this commitment. So I went west. And you became and Betty Schaefer. I was played Betty Schaefer in that production, which was really, it was exciting, you know, to, to be in Los Angeles um, telling this story about Los Angeles, about the movie business, to, you know, and uh, it was, you know, we. I drove down Sunset Boulevard every day to work. It was, it was kind of, you know, an interesting experience. So, who is Betty Schaefer, or who was she? Um, the character. I yeah, assume yeah, 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 the character Betty Schaefer. Sure. Well, um, I mean, for those who don't know the the film that it's based on, it was a. It's about a. Uh, um, an aging silent movie star trying to find her way into you know to kind of to maintain her status in the uh, the the age of the talkies. Name, um, name Norma Desmond. No, name Norma Desmond. Yeah. Um, and uh, Betty Schaefer is a I guess what they would call a D girl who works for the studio. Um, uh, works for the, one of the big producers who starts a relationship with. Um, the character of Joe Gillis, who also is having a relationship with Norma Desmond, unbeknownst to her. Um, so it's a little complicated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, she's the ingenue. <laughs> <laughs> well, as we're talking through all of these shows, which are which are such big shows, you've, you've been in some shows which certainly New Yorkers have not had a chance to see, mm-hmm. either with you or, or subsequent to your being in them. And just want to ask, very quickly, tell us a little about a couple of those. The Ballad of Little Joe at Steppenwolf, which I heard wonderful things about. Yeah, that is a great piece, which I hope somebody will do in New York someday. It <clears throat> It's really a, an incredibly powerful, powerful piece and very, very well written. Um, it's the. It was also based on a film by the same name, which was um, based on uh, actually a true story about... I, I mean, it, it's a true story, although... Uh, not um the then this telling of it wasn't exactly it was fictionalized but um about a woman in the late 19th century who winds up nobody really knows how <laughs> um in Idaho mining country and um uh passes as a man and there really was a woman named Josephine Monahan who called herself Joe Monahan who lived as a minor in Idaho, and and actually her true um, gender identity wasn't discovered until her death, but she's sort of a mythological Western character, of which there are many, but many stories have been told about her um, 
trying to sort of understand what happened to her. Um, in this telling of it, she had a child out of wedlock and was thrown out of her house and put on put on a train to the West Coast and got thrown off the train and um, had many unfortunate things happen to her. She was attacked and eventually realized it wasn't this this part of the world wasn't a place for a woman alone. And so she sort of hides as a man, hoping to, I guess, acquire the means to continue to move on somewhere else and winds up kind of stuck in this mining town. And in the vagaries of new musicals, it was done at Steppenwolf, but we right. we haven't seen it. Um, another show where you and I first met was one of the multiple versions of Martin Gare. Yes. Also based on a true story, also altered for, for that version. Yes. Can you just say a few words about that? You know, that, again, was another very happy, interesting, challenging um, piece Uh um yes based on but not but this one not based on the movie the the film that I think many some people might be familiar with called The Return of Martin Gare. This was really told through the story of the woman um and what happens to her in the, and and it's funny it's funny you should bring these two stories up because they always sort of reminded me of each other of a a you know they, they take place in a similar time and it's in both cases about a woman in a small town trying to find her way and kind of against the community that doesn't quite accept who she or in the case of the Ballad of Little Joe, he is sort of an outsider in this community and is ultimately kind of done in by the community. Um, so they're very similar tales in a way. Also recently you co-starred in the world premiere of Michael John LeCuse's The Highest Yellow with a signature mm-hmm. in Arlington. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, that piece, which also hasn't seen the light of day in New York, I don't know what Michael John is if he's still working on it or what's what's happened with that piece. But um, that is a story about Vincent Van Gogh. And it begins with the night that he's admitted to the hospital after having cut off his ear. And it sort of tries to imagine the people around him, the doctor who treated him, of which a little bit is known, um, and the woman... Uh, who's called Rachel, the prostitute, who's called Rachel, and um, who he had spent that evening with. Um, and so it's sort of a Michael John and, and writer John Strand, um, their imaginings of what, ha- I, I mean, I think the kind of idea in this story was what happens to kind of ordinary people when they confront genius and madness Um and it's it's a sort of a spin on that. We have almost no time left. Okay. But you, despite the anxious publicist outside the door, <laughs> you would not forgive us if we did not ask you about your passion for the work of Laura Nero. <laughs> well, um, that actually began in the theater. I did a show um, about six years ago at the Vineyard Theater called Eli's Coming, which was a kind of abstract piece um, which sort of wove a narrative out of her songs Uh, it was a wonderful piece and although I was familiar with her music before that as people of a certain age are (laughs) um, I hadn't really focused on her music or listened to all of her recordings and I was so taken with it 
And uh, a year ago, well, not quite a year ago, last, uh, well, yes, a year ago from now, I was asked um, by John Nakagawa at Lincoln Center to do an evening at the American Songbook. Um, and they suggested that I do an evening of Laura Nero because they knew of my familiarity with it and my affinity for it. Um, so I did it, and it was so well-received. People were so taken with uh, people love this music that I then went ahead and made a recording called Serious Playground and then have been doing concerts in the, in New York and I just did one in Washington at the Kennedy Center and continue to get this great response to this music it's really been very exciting so I want to keep doing it and we should mention that Serious Playground is on Ghostlight Records. It's on Ghostlight Records. So if you go to Google and type in Ghostlight, go right to the website. You can buy it from the website. Yes, or, or I guess Amazon, if, uh, Barnes & Noble. The, yeah, any of the online yeah. retailers. Serious Playground, the music of Laura Nero, and the voice of Judy Kuhn singing it, and the voice of Judy Kuhn and the presence of Judy Kuhn <laughs> in Les Miserables on Broadway as Fantine. Judy, thanks so much for being with us today well, on Downstage Center. Thank you so much for having it's me. It's been fun. Thank you. Thanks, Judy. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten. For Downstage Center, that is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.